Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, I thank you for this morning. This is the day that you have made, and we rejoice in that. God, it is so good to be gathered together. You have brought each one of us here for a reason. And so, God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning, speak to us through the songs we sing, speak to us through the scripture read, and through the word this morning. Do in us what it was meant to have do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, hope you're all doing well. I myself, I'm a little emotionally drained after that 18-inning game yesterday. Oh, that was brutal. <laughs> uh, we'll get them next year. I don't like Houston right now, though. Sorry. The, the whole city right now, struggling in my heart. Um, <laughs> but we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 6 this morning. We've been going through this series in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at uh, the Greek city of Corinth, the church in that city. And I'm so thankful that we have this account in Scripture. Um, I'm really, really thankful for it because it, it's, it's a challenging book. It's a really challenging book to look at for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, there are some accounts of what was happening in this church that should disturb us. An example being last week we were looking uh, at 1 Corinthians 5 and it talks about uh, a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. And there, beyond that, there was no repentance, and there was arrogance and pride. And, and so it's, it's a challenging book because there are accounts in this that we look at, and, and it should disturb us. I think it's also challenging because when we look at it, um, if we're honest, uh, there might be conviction of this as we look around and we see ourselves and, and our own some of the struggles that we have and some of the struggles that our own church has, sometimes we look at it and go, yeah, this is convicting. But I'm thankful for this book because uh, it, it, sometimes I think we romanticize what the early church looked at like. I hear people sometimes say, oh, we just got to get back to the New Testament church. Well, okay, this is a New Testament church with some serious issues. And so there, there were a lot of issues going on in the church. There were some people who were, uh, we, in the first couple of chapters, we talked about divisions in the church. There were people who were following Paul and some Apollos and some Peter and, and some were saying, well, I just follow Jesus. And it was this infighting within the church of which, uh, which preacher do we like? Sound familiar? Other issues have been moral, of course, the example from last week. And today we're going to look at, at greater detail at some of the stuff that was going on. But it was a messy church. It was a very messy church. And I've never been to a church that wasn't messy. Um, church that I grew up at down in Seattle had its own messes. Some seasons were more messy than others, certainly. <coughs> but it was always a messy church. 
When I went to college, I went to a couple of different churches in Pullman, Washington, and they had their own messes. Because it's messy people coming together to worship our God who loves us in our own messes. So, we've seen disunity in the Corinthian church, we've seen immaturity, sexual immorality, and now Paul is going to describe in more detail some struggles that this church was going through. So let's turn to Scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Let's stop there for a minute. We're going to continue on, but let's stop here for a second. Apparently, there are arguments rising within the church, but instead of going to the church and submitting to the church's authority to handle this, there are members who are bringing legal cases against each other. Now, understand that Greek culture is a very litigious culture. Uh, the, the Greeks loved their legal system. It was entertainment for them. And so uh, there, there was a saying just up the road in Athens that every Athenian was a lawyer. And they had juries somewhat similar to what we have today, although there were some differences, one being the size. Juries, the typical jury in Greece was 40 people. There were often juries of over 100 people. There are some even documented cases of over 1,000 people on a jury. They loved it. It was their entertainment. And here's the first problem here. The church, instead of believing that they had the authority to handle arguments among themselves, they were taking these disagreements out into the public, out into the civic law courts before unbelievers to make an adjudication. And Paul pulls no punches in what he thinks of this. He writes, when one of you has an argument against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Essentially, Paul's saying, how dare you do this? How dare you go public with this before the civic courts instead of handling this among yourselves? And in verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. You should be ashamed. And here's the first point for today. We, as believers, must respect the authority of God's church. Amen. Now, that can be a hard pill to swallow sometimes. We can go into many different passages of Scripture to discuss this, but here's one. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here Paul is describing the role of elders in the church. And he describes it as overseers of the body of believers, entrusted with caring, guiding the flock. There is authority within the church. There, last week, when we were looking at 1 Corinthians 5, we looked at the authority of the church to make very difficult decisions in extreme cases, in ex- very extreme cases where there is no repentance and there has been multiple uh, attempts to, gain, uh, to, to, to bring repentance. There is the authority of the church to excommunicate in very severe, specific circumstances, always, always, always with the hope of repentance and reconciliation to Christ. And there are many passages describing the roles of elders and deacons within the church. All of this to be said, the church does exercise authority, and ultimately the purpose of the church is to make disciples of all nations. We are described as the hands and feet of God in the world, and therefore the ones as the church that God uses to do much of his work. All this to be said, the church does exercise the authority, and we are called to respect the authority of the church to make decisions, to arbitrate disagreements. The second point today is that we must be cautious in airing the church's dirty laundry. He asks, Paul asks in verse 4, Why would you lay such cases before those who have no standing within the church? By taking these issues out into the secular arena, you are providing a terrible testimony to the unbelieving world. You tell the world about hope and peace and joy and, and, and contentment in Christ and the unity of believers, and you're suing one another? You're taking your brother to court? Why, why would you take these issues inside the church and go to the secular world to have them make a decision? We, there, there, there's not a common understanding. So why would you even consider that? Now, I don't say this to argue that the church should cover up its shortcomings. There are many churches that have severe issues. And I don't say this to put on this pious face and pretend that we're just better than the rest of the world, that we don't struggle. There are many examples of corruption within churches. And, and I don't say that to say that the church should just cover up the actions, especially within, of its leaders. But I do say this to say that those within the church should be the example of Christ-like love. Taking a dispute that I have with a brother, and how is it loving to show that to the world? To air that out to the world. How am I loving them? You know, Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 13, they will know you by your love for one another. Which brings us to the third point today. 
Ultimately, this is a call to love. This is a call to love. Paul is at calling the church to love each other, but not just any kind of love, as we're, we see as we look at the next few verses. He is calling them to be self-sacrificing in their love. The word that we use all the time, it's the Greek word agape. Total, self-sacrificing love. And we're going to see that in the next few verses. Starting in verse 5. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Saying it doesn't matter who wins, it doesn't matter if you take your brother and you win in court, it's already a defeat to you because you, had, you, you, you decided to go there in the first place. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. The whole idea here is about love. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples, they will know you by your love for one another. And we all know, you know, Jesus says to love even our enemies. Paul says to the Corinthians in the, in the next a letter that he will write to them that you have many great gifts. You have great gifts of prophecy. There are people in your church who are prophetic. There are people in your church who are speaking in tongues. That's a wonderful gift from the Holy Spirit. But if you don't have love, you're just a noisy gong. You're just something that makes noise. The expression, especially brother to brother, sister to sister, brother to sister in the church, the chief expression has to be love. And, and take note of what Paul writes here. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That's kind of hard for us to swallow a little bit. Like, it's like, really? What Should I just roll over and let them walk all over me? Well, it actually should sound familiar. Uh, Paul is paraphrasing something that Jesus taught. Paul, Paul is quoting Jesus here. Um, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you, take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So when Paul says, hey, if somebody's trying to defraud you, why not just give them what they want? In, in love, rather than taking it out into the public arena to gain, quote-unquote, justice. Essentially, you know, what, what he's saying the exact same thing as what Jesus said. If anyone would take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if you're struggling with this concept, it's okay. Peter did too. Remember, Peter goes to Jesus and says, man, this forgiveness thing, Jesus, this, this forgiveness thing is great. I love it. How many times 
How many times do I have to let the same person wrong me? I'm going to go big here, Jesus. I'm going to say seven. And that would be my response. You know, that would be what I would say. I'd be like, man, if I give somebody seven chances, uh, they did me wrong, uh, I'll forgive them. Oh, then again, I'll still forgive you again, 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 again. Seven times is a lot to forgive the same wrong. But Jesus says, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. He talked about that kind of love, that kind of forgiveness, that kind of willingness to be wronged by people. Just forgive. Don't hold a grudge. Now, understand that in the same chapter, there is context. Jesus says that if your brother sins against you, go to him personally, privately. Just handle it one-on-one. Try to work it out between the two of you. Tell them what offended you, why, and, and give an opportunity. An opportunity to, uh, for, for acknowledgement and repentance. And maybe there's immediate repentance. That would be great. But if there is not, if they say, well, I didn't do anything wrong, you're the idiot. If your brother... If your brother will not receive correction or admonishment, next time you go to them, Jesus says, take two or three witnesses, that by their mouth every word will be established. Now you have arbitration. You have impartial witnesses, not to, to verify that what was said was indeed said, not only that, but to give wisdom. And if that doesn't work, You remember what Jesus said next? He says, take it to the church. Tell it to the church. Bring it within the context and the authority of the body of Christ. Let the church make a decision. It seems to me that Paul has this in mind when he writes this. He asks, isn't there any one wise person among you? that can help you in these matters rather than going to court. But ultimately, it comes down to love. How far are you willing to go to love them? If they sue you for your shirt, give them your coat also. Go buy another coat. Would you rather go to court? Would you rather lose your brother? lose your testimony, it's not worth it. Now, we got to keep moving through this passage if we're going to get through the whole chapter. Um, start, uh, but these next few verses sometimes get ripped out of context. Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, like I said, these verses often get ripped out of context. And sometimes they're postulated as saying, here's a list of all the things you cannot do as a Christian. 
And if you do them, well, you're going to hell. This is the list, and that's not what's happening. Paul is indicating here in verse 10, someone who is habitually given over to a lifestyle of sin. He's not saying that if you commit one of these sins, boy, you're, you're done for. He's saying that these, if, if this is your lifestyle, if you are given over to these sins, if this is your whole life, then, there, then you might not be made new in Christ. J, uh, James, we talked about that when we went through the book of James. Faith without works is dead. There is a change in the heart of the believer. And it's not a change by condemnation of the law. It's a change that comes by grace. Now, the other thing that we do here is, is zero in. I've heard many people zero in on the sexual sins. Adultery is mentioned. Homosexuality is mentioned. And we, for some reason, zero in on these things and, on the list and, pop, pop, and go, see, these things are really bad. Well, let's go through the rest. Idolatry. Have you ever made an idol out of anything? In other words, put it above God. Put anything in your life above God. That could be, for some people, it could be food. For some people, it could be their car. Thieves, he's, Paul mentions. Have you ever taken something that isn't yours? That doesn't mean grand theft auto. Sometimes we want to put a certain value on stealing and say, well, okay, I haven't taken it. I mean, shoot, have you ever taken office supplies home that weren't really yours? Stealing. Greed. Oh, boy. If that one doesn't knock most of us out, I don't know what will. Because that's just wanting something you don't really need. It's a luxury. It's not yours. Drunkenness. Have you ever drank more than you should? Gotten a little tipsy? Dinner with friends and you had a couple glasses of wine? Shoot, you're out. Reviler. This is an interesting one. A reviler is someone who speaks contemptuously or abusively about another person. Could even be considered gossiping. Swindler, tried to pay less for something than its fair value. Or maybe tried to get out of paying your fair share of income taxes. I don't know. <laughs> so we go through these, and, and, and often we want to focus in on adultery and homosexuality and go, see, these sins are really bad. Paul says so. Well, if we're honest, and we go through this list, either it says, I'm not going to heaven because I've committed a large number of these. Or Paul is indicating something else here. Now, Paul does, in the next chunk of, of, of the verses, starting in verse 12, he does look at sexual immorality. I believe that's for a reason. So, so we're going to continue on. Paul says, in quotations, all things are lawful for me. 
but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It seems that most scholars believe that Paul is quoting a slogan, a phrase that was common among some of the Corinthian Christians. All things are lawful for me. In other words, I have complete liberty and freedom in Christ because I've been a Christian, I've been set free, I'm not under the law, and now that I belong to Christ, I don't have to follow the law anymore. Now, it is true. You are not under the condemnation of the law. The law is not over your head anymore as a tools of condemnation, but that does not mean that you can act in any way you please. Paul is correcting this. He says, indeed, you are set free. He quotes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not everything will help me in my path of following Christ. Now, uh, there were sects within the early church at this time uh, that held a false teaching. And it was beginning to spread. Um, and and this, the idea was this, that the body isn't important. The body isn't important. It's the soul that's eternal, and if the body doesn't matter, well, it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. As long as the soul is kept pure. Paul is saying, no, that's not how that works. You say all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Now, the next statement, he says, all things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. He's, he's reiterating essentially what he said in the previous verses of this cannot be your lifestyle. You can't be given over to a lifestyle of sin. Now, if we look 
we got, we got to look at chapter 10, one verse in chapter 10, because it puts this whole thing together. So um, in chapter 10, Paul writes this. He, write, he quotes the same thing. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He says the same thing. Then he says, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. King James Version says edify. Now here's, here's our fourth point today. When it comes to the gray areas in our lives, when it comes to stuff maybe isn't crystal clear on how we are to live, Paul is actually giving us tools to help guide us. He's giving us a lens that we can look at the things of this world. All things are lawful, but will it help me? Is it good for me? You say all things are lawful, but will, it, will I become addicted to it? Will it hold me under its power? You say all things are lawful, but will it improve me? Will it build me up? Will it cause me to grow closer with God? Build my relationship with him. Indeed, we are, we have liberty and freedom. It's freedom in Christ of grace, of mercy, which means that the law is good, that the law is a means of following Christ, that is a work of the Holy Spirit in us. Paul writes to the Roman church, um, which had some similar struggles. What shall we say then? Chapter 6. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this whole scripture that we're looking at in chapter 6. There are two verses that this whole chapter hinges on. One in the middle and one at the end. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, speaking of the list of these sins, such were some of you. You were these things. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And then at the end, verse 19 and 20, he says, so since all of that, now you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So that whole list we looked at, the fornicator, the swindler, the greedy, the drunkard, the reviler, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Notice the tense of all of this. You were these things. You were these things. Such were some of you, but that's no longer your identity. Because if you accept Christ, you were washed of those things. You were justified before God. You are in right standing with him. You were sanctified, meaning the spirit is working in you. The spirit is making a new creation. 
And then verse 20, you were bought. You were bought with a price. So now glorify God with everything that you are, including your body. You can't give your body up to just whatever it wants. Your body must be something that glorifies God. See, as Christians, yes, we are set free from condemnation under the law, so we could say all things are lawful, except that if we believe this, if we say that this is our faith, now there's a call to glorify God. And this isn't just a Sunday thing. It's not just a come to church and glorify God on Sunday or a Tuesday night Bible study. This is a daily, hourly, minute by minute change in our life by the Holy Spirit. You were lost. You were held under the power of sin and condemnation of the law. But now, through the work of Christ, through the price that he paid for you, you are free. So now the call is to glorify him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you. I thank you for your son. I thank you for the work that he did on the cross. That through him, we can stand before you, not under condemnation of the law. Lord, now I, I ask that you would continue the work in each of our hearts to bring glory to you. That our days, that we, that we would seek first your kingdom each day. That your love would ultimately be shown to each, that we would show love to each other each day, each minute. In Jesus' name, amen.